Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, when I get very bad depression, for example, I don't feel right, but I feel I can just about get through and do what I need to do. But I could only do it because I had a very supportive boss and I had a very supportive team. They understood. Hi, I'm Sam Wolfson, and this is the Vice UK podcast. So it's been a pretty shitty week, and we're going to talk about Donald Trump in a second. But I guess on Wednesday morning, when that news was sort of reverberating around the office, no one got any work done. Everyone was just refreshing different news sites, trying to make sense of what was going on. That was just one morning, but if you suffer from long-term anxiety, from depression, from other mental illness, the way it affects your work can be a real issue. I think this is something we're all aware of and we all want sort of things to be done in a kind of abstract sense. We all want a better relationship with employers and for us to be able to talk about mental health problems more openly in the workplace. But how can that actually happen when 56% of employers say they wouldn't hire someone who had depression? We're going to be joined by Alistair Campbell, famously the press secretary during Blair's years in Downing Street, but more recently involved in advocacy groups campaigning for rights for people suffering from mental health problems. Before that, though, I'm joined by Hannah and Bish in the Vice Office. We are talking about mental health in the workplace this week, but it'd be weird to start a podcast and not talk about the Trump victory, particularly its impact on mental health. I saw reports saying that there has been 660 calls to the American like, suicide hotline in the one hour that uh, it was announced that Trump looked like he was going to be winning. There have been increased calls to LGBT suicide helplines and various other sort of um, mental health services. Is that an appropriate response to to something like this? Can big events in the world have an impact on mental health? Well, yeah, I mean, copycat suicides are an example of events that cause people's mental health to go into overdrive and then cause them to take their own lives. I mean, people talk a lot about stability being important for your mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And if you see the sort of fabric of the world starting to unravel, that can be upsetting, I think just the general stress of seeing everything become completely dystopian, it takes a bit of a toll on you. Do you think that there's something to do with the surprise of it, as with Trump, that people thought it was going to go the other way, and so the shock feels you've had less time to prepare? Almost like it's just so ridiculous that it goes beyond having a kind of learned reaction to it. I think also if you are in a minority group, it's quite right. If you're an American Muslim living in a red state, you'll probably like wake up with a lot more sort of day-to-day fear. I'd say the the inevitability of something like that would be more depressing than the shock. 
I'd say like if you're expecting something to happen, it would be sadder because it feels a bit more like you don't have any control over it. This is different because this is actually shocking. Like this is something that no one but the millions of people that voted for Donald Trump expected. I mean, his election is related to that debate, you know, that has raged on American college campuses about, you know, whether we should be respectful of people's mental health and whether we should warn people about certain, you know, have this, what he would see as like kind of political correctness. Part of his campaign has been to rally against that, you know, with the help of Breitbart and Milo Yiannopoulos and the whole crew and say, you know, we're not interested in that. We don't want in his words, have impingements on freedom of speech to protect people's uh, mental health. I suppose the only aspect of mental health that conservatives are interested in is the PTSD of uh, ex-soldiers. That seems to be the only thing that they can understand as a mental health issue. And certainly it's true that if, you know, in this election where there has been so much talk of sexual abuse, of incest, if you have been a victim of any of those things, it's perhaps not surprising that there is a lot of anecdotal evidence anyway that people are going to their psychiatrist to talk about, well, a Trump candidacy and now I'm sure a Trump presidency. Moving on from Trump, because it is just quite miserable and it's all anyone's been talking about all week. Hannah, you've written something this week that's sort of at least tangentially related to mental health and work, which is about, I guess people call it the quarter life crisis now, don't they? It actually usually happens around your mid-twenties, so you can just call it the mid-twenties crisis. Basically sort of a guide, some practical advice for if you're going through a mid-twenties crisis. And what is a mid-twenties crisis? It's just freaking out about your job, freaking out about what your purpose is in life. You might be feeling totally disillusioned by your job or a relationship, maybe feeling trapped in it. Maybe you realise you're in something that you're in a job that you don't want to do. A midlife crisis, but happening earlier when you're in your 20s. Right. There is certainly a view among some that this sense that 25-year-olds like have a constant freak out about, oh, I'm in the wrong job or I don't know what I'm doing with my life or whatever, comes from a sort of sense of entitlement and wanting everything too quickly and uh, just kind of being a bit like Hannah Horvath from Girls. Do you buy into that, Bish? Which way do you come down? I've never seen Girls, so I don't get the references. Who is who's that Lena Dunham's That's character? That's Lena Dunham's character. Okay. Yeah, I think once once you reach, you know, the middle of your 20s, especially now, the levels that you start to think about your own mortality grow exponentially. And then you start becoming concerned about your life and what it means what, more than you, you would before. No, you're going to die. Yeah, because you know you're going to die. But also, I think you think more about what your life represents as a thing. What are you going to do with it? Does it mean anything? Who does it mean something to? You know, stuff like that. And they're all big questions that you don't ask yourself until you get to that point in your life. And it's a lot to take in, especially when you're not earning a lot of money, as most people that age do. And one thing to say about like the entitlement thing is that the academic who I spoke to for that piece, he is kind of like the leading expert on the quarter-life crisis. And he said that completely objectively, your 20s is like the most stressful time of your life because you have to basically make all your big life decisions in a really short space of time i don't think it's as simple as being like oh we just have these now because we're really entitled because you can have two types of uh quarter life crisis you can have like the locked in type which is where maybe you you get into a job and you're a bit like oh wait this isn't 
what I thought it was going to be, and I'm just this cog in a machine. Yeah. Um, or there's the locked out. Working in PR. That's yeah, really working in PR when all your mates seem to be like traveling or just quitting and fucking off to do something that seems more fun. And mm. uh, then you've got the locked out crisis where they can't actually get into the industry they want or they they just feel like they're locked out of being an adult. Right, they haven't got further enough along the path that they wanted and now they really don't know what's going on. Oh well, yeah, or maybe they haven't really got anywhere. Started, yeah. And that's obviously quite stressful too. And you can have a mix of the two. Yes. <laughs> a nice fun mix a of nice fun being mix locked of the two. in and locked out. And the article itself was actually giving sort of advice for people in those situations. So one good idea is change your concept of time. So you might be freaking out thinking, should I quit my crappy job and just go traveling? You're thinking of everything in such like a, an immediate time frame when really you can just think, oh, okay, in my 20s, at some point, I want to go traveling. In my 30s, at some point, I want to get into a career that I really like. And Won't that so just make on. you put everything off for ages though? No, because I think as soon as you chill out, you can actually make better decisions rather than being in this really paralyzed kind of hyped up space if i don't have five more great times before the end of 2016 i'm nothing exactly exactly okay what else um another thing is it's very easy when you're in a crisis to kind of blame everything on one area of your life so if you're saying if i if i only i wasn't in this job or if only i could get this job everything will be fine when in reality it just doesn't really work like that your problems that. run deeper mate you're fucked up in more ways than you're considering right now <laughs> well that's a relaxing thought another good thing is basically just give yourself time and space to chill out if you're not feeling great and you're really stressed out just have a weekend to you know watch netflix if that's what you want to do and don't feel guilty for not being productive all the time See, this is one that I kind of had an issue with because I think that those weekends where you do nothing and watch Netflix are actually the things that make you most stressed out because you kind of sit there in this like sort of stasis, you know, and watch episode after episode, maybe have a wank in the middle and get back to it. And at the end of it, you feel like a kind of empty hedonistic shell who hasn't achieved anything with the free time that they had. When really, if you are having a crap time in your job or a crack time with your girlfriend or whatever, you should have been using that time to like plan or like at least tidy up your flat or at least do something that feels like you've got something to show for it at the end of the weekend i think the watching the netflix can make you quite miserable yeah i agree that's basically why i don't watch tv but i think that if you're one of these people who is I'm having sorry, a midlife for saying watching the netflix like an 80 year old person <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's on. okay i accept your apology um if you're one of the people who's having a midlife crisis, you're likely to be one of those people who just feel like you have to be productive all the time. You always have to be on. Mm. Well, that's kind of how we live now. And if you're in the kind of space where you're really getting annoyed of yourself and thinking that you haven't spent your time productively when you've literally given yourself one evening just to breathe yeah. or like that's that's when you do need that time. Like that's an indicator that you actually need to be a little bit of space bit kind to yourself i mean we are going to talk about the kind of serious issue of mental health in the workplace and how having various mental health problems can affect your job and we're going to be joined by alistair campbell but before that i just wanted to ask on a slightly lighter note everyone i suppose has coping mechanisms for tough days the small things that can actually make you feel all right for five minutes off the record hannah what's your 
mental health coping mechanism? Mine is making sure that I get up early enough for work so that I actually have a shower and put on makeup and don't look like shit when I come into work because that always starts a cycle. Bish, what do you do to cheer yourself up? If a bad day is going badly, it just goes badly. I just let it happen. But you have written in the past on Vice about feeling depressed at work and things. Um, my experience with depression is a lot different to a lot of other people's, though. Because mine was like a psychotic depression episode mm. that lasted half a year. Whereas a lot of other people's, I think, is more, you know, regular. And then they feel like a bit anxious every day or a bit depressed every day. And then have to think themselves out of it. Whereas mine was like, I couldn't do anything... I couldn't eat, I couldn't, like, and it, it just went on for ages, and it was like, you know, people were like, oh, why don't you go for a walk? So I tried to go for a walk, and I felt, I actually felt like I was, like, hallucinating while I was walking, because I was just so depressed. It was unbelievable. I've never had anything like it before in my life. Could you work during that period? No. Every time I went to work, I'd start crying. But the thing is, like, like if, if you're like that, as far as I can tell... There isn't a coping mechanism. It's like you're debilitated completely by it. And you need time off and you need yeah. space. In a second, we're going to talk about some of the sort of big picture issues around mental health work. But before that, here are a couple of young people who have dealt with some of these issues firsthand. Let's just say not all employers are as sympathetic as others. When I had the breakdown, my work weren't particularly supportive at all, even though I had a doctor's note to say I was off sick. And they're like, well, could you maybe just work from home this day? Could you come in for half an afternoon? And it just wasn't very conducive to, to getting better at all. So I took a big step. I'd worked there for about four years and I left with nothing to go to because I had to just focus on recovery. After that, with my having bipolar, it's very difficult to then have to explain that gap in your CV because people then want to know. And part of your recovery is, I should be really honest about how, I, how I'm feeling and what I've been through, and maybe a bit naively as well. People just aren't particularly receptive. They just hear the horror stories from you know films in the 70s and 60s. And I've got to a point where I felt pretty bullied. There was people talking about my back. Um, I did make it in for the odd day here and there, trying to ease myself back in, and they'd move my desk. People were open emailing about me, talking about me. People who I thought were friends just shunned me, basically. Um, and that just made me more ill, because I was just so upset that I tried to be open and honest with them and say, look, this is what's wrong. I've been told I should just talk about it with you. Um, and if people want to talk to me, then that's fine. Like, you know, have a little team meeting or something, and people can have a chat, because I know this is really awkward. And they went, oh, no, no, it's not necessary. But evidently it probably was because no one would talk to me at all, which, you know, you can't work in that sort of team environment and just be shunned in the corner. So I just had to take a, a huge leap and just, and just leave and focus on just getting better, um, knowing that that was never going to be a path I could go back down. For me, work can be a bit of a, like a sanctuary, so I can lose myself in my work. Um, it's normally dealing with other people or being like out in the world that's the, that makes things worse. So I tend to sort of withdraw into my work quite a lot, which although can be positive in the sense that can, it makes me feel a bit better, 
for sort of short periods in the long run it can mean that I don't go out and see people or uh, interact beyond emails and things with people. When I start work, I a new job, I always disclose that I have mental health, but in a very vague way. Um, I'll usually more sort of imply that it's anxiety and depression because disclosing exactly borderline personality disorder opens like a huge can of worms that I don't want to deal with. But also I need, for my own protection, employers to know that sometimes I'm not going to be my usual self. Going in when I'm low is really difficult and I don't get anything done. But then obviously with borderline personality disorder, sometimes I'm not low and sometimes I'm high, like up. Then I get everything done in, in five minutes and I'm so productive. And so it kind of balances out in the end. Like I might have two days a week where I do literally nothing. Like, And then I might have others where I've done my entire week's work in a day and a half. In the workplace especially, if you're working a normal nine to five job, the people around you don't think that there's people that are seriously mentally unwell in their midst. I've had people make comments and jokes and things that I feel like they wouldn't say if they knew. And I think it comes from this assumption that, that there isn't anyone like that suffers with anything around them. Because I have self-harm scars on my arms and I have a theory that the reason people get uncomfortable when they see them is because they just assume that if they're working with me, I must be normal, not have anything you know, wrong. Those are some difficult situations. So Bish and Hannah are still here and we're joined by Alistair Campbell, who was famously press secretary and then head of communications during uh, Tony Blair's time in Downing Street. But more recently, he has been writing a lot about uh, his own issues with mental health and become a bit of an advocate uh, for various groups that support working rights for people suffering from mental health problems. Alistair, you had a very high profile job, which was very much in the public eye. And, you know, day to day, there were things that completely relied on you being there. For people in that kind of work, is it as easy to kind of work around mental health issues? I never felt mentally ill in the way that, you know, if I get flu, I feel physically ill. Now, when I get very bad depression, for example, I don't feel right, but I feel I can, most of the time, I can just about get through and do what I need to do. But I could only do it because I had a very supportive boss and I had a very supportive team. They understood. I mean, I think it's hard for people to be open because of the stigma and the taboo, but I've always felt, for me, being open has never harmed me. And sometimes I just think you, you, we need to be able to have that conversation that says, you know, are you feeling a bit on edge? Are you stressed out? You seem very anxious. You seem very low and what have you. And we're still at that stage, I think, where most people say, no, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. Mm. Whereas actually it's better, I think, if we can find ourselves capable of saying, I'm not fine. And the employer and the colleague thinks, OK, well, we know what to do. I mean, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about winning and had the psychology of winning. And I had a section in there about how some of the greatest achievers of all time. Here we are. We just had Trump. Who's the greatest American president? Most people say Lincoln. Lincoln was a major depressive. Uh, Who's our greatest prime minister? Winston Churchill. You know, he coined the phrase black dog and he had problems with alcohol. So I think we sometimes we have to look at this through the different end of the telescope stop seeing it all as it's all terrible 
and actually say sometimes the people that we define as mentally ill are going to give us more. So actually, if you take something like bipolar, what are the characteristics, the, the kind of the profound depressions that people get, and then these, these moods of, of mania? And that's why it was, used to be called, you know, manic uh, depression. I mean, I know this from myself. I know that some of my <laughs> most productive work has come when I've been manic. Um, and so is some of my worst work, probably. And likewise, when I get very, very depressed, I'm very, very low on energy and what have you. But the experience, I think, strengthens me. So I think we should stop thinking that because somebody is bipolar, because somebody's got OCD, that of itself prevents them from being able to commit, to contribute to the, to the, to the, work, the, the workplace. Now, it may be that they can't. You have to be honest about that as well. But don't rule people out because they're open about saying they've got a mental illness. It's hard, though, isn't it? If you're in a sort of slightly insecure job and you're aware that 56% of employers say they wouldn't want to employ someone, even with depression, yeah. um, you know, you can try yeah, listen, to be not open. long ago, it would have been near 90%. Yeah. So it's changing. And it only changes if you keep changing it. Coming out and saying you have a mental health problem, that's, that's a big thing to do. So I never say to them, you should do it. What I do say is in my experience, it's been a good thing to do. And added to which, I know this again is an easy thing for somebody like me to say, I wouldn't want to work for somebody who didn't understand this. I really wouldn't, because that would say to me, this is not a healthy workplace. If my boss didn't understand that some people get mental health issues, and if they did, they just saw it as a weakness, or they just saw it as a vulnerability, or they just saw somebody as a waste of money, I wouldn't want to work for them. Well, let's talk about what bosses can do. I mean, you obviously have been, you know, a boss as well as having your own boss. And I think that it's sometimes hard to know what is the right attitude to have. I've certainly had it at other places where people have been working for me and then, you know, they've come in late every day for a week and then I've said, what's going on? And they've gone, oh, I've had really bad sort of depression or whatever. And it's hard to say, well, you know, you like you want to be helpful, but you also want to be yeah, like... Yeah. So I think the most important thing an, an employer can do is promote a healthy culture. And I try to promote this idea that within every group, within every business, there should be somebody who's the person that if you feel on edge, and it might be Hannah who's the person, you go to Hannah and you say, I'm feeling on edge. And that person is kind of invested both by the employer and by you to sort of at least have an understanding and think through the right the right way to handle this. Mm. How much, Joe, do you think that the nature of work itself, you know, that there is a sort of lack of pastoral care and work itself can be very sort of bottom line focused, can affect people's mental health in the workplace? Well, I mean, it's, it, it has a massive impact. I think less so um, in our sort of circles where it's it's sort of like a lot of the things we do and a lot of the people we know, it's kind of personality based and everyone's a personality here, you know, all the writers that we have are all personalities. It's a lot easier for those people to come out and be like, yeah, I'm having trouble. If you're working at GlaxoSmithKline or HSBC. And lots of companies where there are cultures of like 18 hour days and you've got to kind of, yeah. you know, show how hard you're and, and be cutthroat. I guess cutthroat is being yeah. a pug. But also if you're, if you're doing like working zero hour contracts and stuff that you just feel, you'd feel like no one cares about your, your mental health at all. I think this is why I kind of need some convincing that the right attitude is to treat mental health issues the same as physical health issues because physical health issues by and large aren't triggered by the work that you're actually doing. See, I, th I think 
our physical health is in part condition. I mean, broken leg is different. You're probably going to break your leg because you fell down the stairs or you're playing football or whatever. That's slightly different. But I think a lot of physical illnesses do come from stress, from the workplace, from getting tired mm. and not looking after yourself properly. So the, there is a link. Um, but also, I'm, I'm making a broader point, which is that it's about changing culture. We've done it in relation to smoking. 10, 20 years ago, one of us, two of us, we're having a fag as mm. we speak. Mm. Those who don't smoke, grin and bear it. Well, that changed. That changed through campaigning, it's changed through culture. Drink driving, seatbelts. That belts. was heavy legislation, though, that made... No, but the legislation followed, I think. What, from the change in attitudes? I think the change was already coming. Here's the other thing, when you talk about openness, I mean, so there's over 600 MPs. I think only four have talked about having mental health problems. Mm. Well, there's no way it's only for. I know it's not for. But they feel the stigma as well. They worry that if they come out, their constituents won't respect them as much. Their opponents will exploit it. The media will think it's identify them in that way. I understand that. But I think it's the wrong way to do it. So whenever I'm doing these these talks and things and campaign events, it's always me, it's me Frank Bruno, Stephen Fry... Ruby Wax. Mm. There's a small number of us keeping getting wheeled <laughs> out circuit. again and again and again and again. We do need more and more people because I think that then would sort of spread that message. Mm. Do you know there was a Prime Minister of Norway once? Mm. God, quite a while ago now, but he had very, very bad depression. And he went to the Cabinet and said, look, I can't... They all knew he had depression. He said, I just can't do the job. I'm going to give it up. And, uh, and they wouldn't let him. And the number two took over for a while. And when he was off, he got the highest ratings of any prime minister in Europe. <laughs> uh, now, Norway's probably a more kind of tolerant and gentle country. Uh, what, know. because people approved because he was honest and took the time? Or? And they, felt, they, they actually felt a real sympathy and empathy with him, mm. uh, that he'd admitted he was really, really struggling. And he said, I can't do the job. They, they'd elected him, they wanted him to do the job, and, they, and, they, and so basically his colleagues said, just take time out and try and get yourself better. And he did. And I think the, here's another thing for employers. If you've got, even a place like this, right, where you're all kind of wearing bobble hats and hip and cool and you see all these beards <laughs> out there and all the rest of it, uh, it's like if you've got two CVs in front of you, mm. And one of them said, you, you got two young people, same level, same sorts of O levels and A levels, same sort of degree, same sort of interest, same sort of, you know, did the gap year thing, traveled, just charity, blah, blah, blah. And then one of them's got four months missing. And then you get them in for the interview and you say to them, there's four months, what was that? And one of them says, oh, I was just traveling. And the other one says, well, actually, I didn't want to put this in my CV, but I was in rehab or I had a really bad psychotic meltdown, or I tried to kill myself. I, as an employer, would go for that person, not the other one. Because I think if... Now, most employers will just play safe. Yeah. But I think that person may have more to give because they've got through it mm. and they're open about it. Mm. But we don't encourage people to do that. You know, we've... Joe written a lot about music and things in the past and I think you know if you're in that world that there is quite a high prevalence of um, of poor mental health in the music industry particularly among artists and, and, and but it's only I think in the last five years that you read interviews where people are kind of 
open to talk yeah. about that, especially with like young musicians. I think it's become a yeah, bit I think more with people that are in the public eye. You don't want them to be what you don't think they are. You don't want your favorite musician or DJ or whatever to be taking Xanax because they can't handle their anxiety because it's not cool. Mm. You don't want your you know, yeah. millions of Twitter followers to know that you're having a, a mental breakdown before well, you go on stage. Like, I mean, I mm. saw recently Adele did an interview. And now there's somebody who's got, I think, got an amazingly kind of buzzy, positive, upbeat image. And then she did an interview saying, talk about her depression. And I just, this is maybe the campaign room. But I just thought, God, that is brilliant. You know, because that's somebody who most people look at and think, no, I couldn't imagine that. But it's real. And so I thought that was great that she spoke about that. On the flip side of that, though, is like, I don't want to cast aspersions on Justin Bieber's mental health or anything. You know, in the in the shows that he's been doing recently, he's been, you know, asking 100,000 screaming teenage girls to just be quiet for five minutes to sort of collect his thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah. And he quite obviously seems unhappy with mm. his life, but there's no way that Justin Bieber, well, maybe he will, but like, it seems unlikely that he will come out and say, you know, I've got depression or anxiety because for his brand. If he did open up, I think he would be fairly hounded, you know, as he kind of is when he has his breakdowns. I'm not saying that we should all be more sympathetic for Justin Bieber, but I think that that is, tends to be what happens, right? Well, if someone has an addiction, if someone has a breakdown or whatever, they tend to be, you know, hounded by the popular press as kind of... But in... do you remember when Britney Spears shaved her head and attacked a car with, a, with an umbrella? Yeah. It's like, back then it was the height of hilarity. But looking back on it, it's... I actually wrote a piece for the Times about that. Uh, I thought it was almost like back to witchcraft. It was like, there's this extraordinary thing when she was going to hospital and she had this like massive convoy of cars and motorbikes following her to hospital. And you just sort of thought, God, you know, just pull back, lay off. I think there is a kind of inhumanity in, in, in the way that um, the media, when it's kind of, you know, in a frenzy about a celebrity in particular the way it behaves and operates. That progressive culture of sympathy and empathy, it sort of flies in the face of what has just happened with a, so. with a Trump so. election, which seems very against the idea of, you know, what they would call political correctness. But, you know, some of the best research in mental health is done in America. Some of the best attitudes on mental health are in America. So we shouldn't imagine that the country has totally changed overnight. Is there something in having a sort of very physical manifestation of poor mental health where then at least it's kind of open and people know and that creates a kind of different, you know, you're not hiding something. Which yeah, is one thing I definitely learned when I had like that period of my life, depression and mental illness is completely abstract until you have it as an experience. Everyone gets ill. Mm. You know, that's why I think the comparison there is sometimes a bit shaky is because everyone gets ill. You've had a cold, you've had a broken leg sometimes. Yeah. You know, everyone has had that. Mm. Not everyone has been depressed. 40 years ago, this was something that was spoken about a lot less. Now you have a situation in schools where you have something close to an epidemic of yeah. mental health problems that self-harm, anorexia and uh, anxiety are almost part of the experience of adolescence now. They are so sort of part and parcel. And I wonder if a younger generation who have been so overwhelmed by the reality of mental health problems might respond differently when they reach working age. I mean, suicide is now killing more young men than anything else. I do think that my kids' generation 
do have a different attitude. It is changing. I, I think the other thing that may have happened is, and this is what I really worry about. I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep on campaigning on the openness front. As we win the battle for more uh, enlightened attitudes, more and more people admit to having mental health issues, but then the treatment's not there. I think Cameron and Osborne talked the talk. I think they did actually do quite a lot of good things in terms of changing the positioning around mental health, but when it came to the cuts and the rest of it, mental health tended to be at the front of the queue. Mm. And likewise, Theresa May comes in. I was pleased that when she became Prime Minister, she stood on the steps of the Downing Street. Downing Street. Her first speech she made, she made a specific mention of the need to support people with mental health issues, but the cuts are still going. Well, I think, you know, you said that a big part of this is a change in attitudes, but I think to finish, if there was one legislative change, whether that's at a national level or an employee level, a sort of different workplace rule that you think would help with this situation. And I would start by saying that as attitudes to mental health change, I think legislation in general about workplace sickness, whether physical or mental, needs to be improved and more robust because I think part of this problem is that there are so many workplaces that have bad sick policies anyway for physical illness particularly at zero hours contractors and places where freelancers are used as full-time staff that um, that that has to change those employee rights have to be improved if mental health sickness is going to be taken seriously. I would say more broadly more education at a younger age about it would be responsible I think mm. young people should be taught more about it and and the effects that it can have and later in life like the, the challenges that they'll face that could trigger it as well yeah I don't think this by the way is necessarily about legislation I mean if you look at the, the National Health Service constitution commits now we've got it in writing now that there is parity between physical and mental health well we don't have it mm. so you can have all the legislation you want But unless you have that commitment and leadership from the top that says this means we're going to take a different approach, then nothing's going to change. Hannah, then you get the final word, is there? Workplaces can get these kind of ambassadors, people that if you're having a problem, you can go to them. And mine do training for that. And they've also, when I spoke to them, um, they said that they started this kind of workplace wellbeing index, kind of like with food hygiene. Yeah. You know, you can look and see like, oh, they've got one star. There's no way I'm going to go eat in there. Similar for workplaces. Yeah. So it's kind of like putting the onus on workplaces rather than employees. You know, it's like the kite marking things. You, They do say something about a company. I think you've got to flip this in where employers and brands and companies feel that there is something in it for them to be seen as a good mental health well-being employer. Alistair, Bish, Hannah, thanks very much for being here. That was the Vice UK podcast produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. We would be very grateful if you could leave a review. If you're wondering what review to leave, it's five stars and this is the best podcast I've ever heard. We'll be back next week. That's almost the end of the podcast, but just as he was leaving, Alistair opened what looked like a kind of ordinary workman's briefcase to reveal a fine set of bagpipes. He was heading to the England-Scotland game that day at Wembley, uh, and he says that Wembley don't allow bagpipes in anymore, so he had to smuggle them through. 
And then quite unprompted, he gave us a quick rendition of what he was planning for that evening.